Uh, we're in a series called Between Two Storms. It's out of the Gospel of Mark. And to set up where we're going this morning, I, I have a question. And I know it's kind of dark in here. Uh, do you guys need light or are you good? Good? Okay. Because I literally have to run and use a Jimmy Rig thing to like turn on the lights. Um, and, but if you're good, we'll go, keep going. Uh, but to set up this morning, I, I just I want to ask a question. It's a question I came across uh, a business book that I was reading. Uh, a guy named, uh, actually, I'll read it since I, uh, Clayton Christensen. It's actually the title of his book. He is a Harvard uh, Business School professor. He graduated from Harvard. One of the brightest minds went on to Oxford and was a Rhodes Scholar there. Uh, And he noticed something about his contemporaries, about his colleagues, about his fellows that he uh, journeyed in life and graduated with. uh, Those that he graduated with at Harvard, uh, they started with all these ideals, started with this mass amount of... uh, anticipation for the good that their lives were going to create and all that was ahead of them. And I mean, you just got to think about it. This is the best. This is the brightest, the most well-educated, educated, and, and the world is before them. Any opportunity they could have, they wanted, they had. And these guys, they would, Harvard throws these really big um, reunions uh, for the alumni. And year five, Clayton goes back uh, to this and looks around, and everyone's got their stuff together. You know, they're captains of their domain, successful entrepreneurs. Uh, everyone's married to someone that looks quite a bit better than they, you, you know. And you just look around, and success oozes in the room, and, and he even writes, he says, you look around and it looks like, it feels like we're a part of something great. It feels like we, we've arrived. And then what's funny, as he's noticed, and it was true with his, in the Oxford area, it just wasn't an American thing, it was in Oxford and the, his fellow graduates of uh, being the, the, a Rhodes Scholar. He says, this is across the board what I noticed. His 25-year reunion, he looked around, and, and guys didn't look so great anymore, and they're on their second and third marriage. In fact, one of his fellows that he graduated with was at the, the time uh, the CEO of Enron, and it, he was now in prison. And he, he just began to realize, could it be that we've measured life completely wrong. When you look around and you see the brightest our nation has to offer, those with the greatest amount of means, those that we had looked to and say, they are living the life, and as he looked around the room, he realized everyone was miserable in the areas that mattered most. They didn't have a significant relationship they could rely on. They failed in the areas of life that really brought happiness and joy. And so he titled his book this, and this is the question, this is the launching pad for us. How will you measure your life? I I mean, how will you determine what is truly successful for you in your life? What is the barometer? Because here's the reality. However you measure your life, that is what your life's pursuit will be after. And that's what you will get. So it's such a critical question for us to ask. And especially if you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, if you're here and you're just kind of wrestling, I just want to leave you with that. 
because I had such a great conversation with a friend not too long ago, and he's 50 years old and, you know, has really climbed the corporate ladder and has done amazingly well. And he said, you know, Ryan, at 50, and he's not a Jesus follower, he, he said, at 50, what I realized is I climbed the wrong ladder. And now, instead of success, and now instead of accolades, now instead of all the accomplishments, I'm looking for meaning and purpose in my life. And so if you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, I just encourage you, would you just wrestle with that question? How? How? How will you measure your life? Because you will always always produce what you measure. Now, I want to change this question for those of us in the room that would call ourselves followers of Jesus. I, I, I don't want to change it per se, I just want to add to it. Let me ask it a little bit this way, because I, I think this has profound impact for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Let me ask it this way. How will you measure your life as a follower of Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought how you're going to gauge how you're doing as a follower of Jesus? Step away from the speaker. Have you ever kind of just sat back, okay, and some of you are like, okay, well, I, you know what? I go to church on Sunday. Check. I, I read the Bible. Check. Um, you know what? I, Ingram's talked about these missional communities. I got in one of those. Is, is that how you measure life as a follower of Jesus? And here's where I'd say I believe in, in Western society and Western Christianity, we wrestle between two storms. And the two storms that, that I believe we wrestle when we ask this question, how will you measure your life as a follower of Jesus, is these two storms. There's two cultural values. There's two things that are at odds with each other that is fighting in your soul. And here it is. We wrestle between the storm of comfort and the storm of our calling. We either tend to begin to measure our life by the comfortable life, by how comfortable I am, and, and does Jesus make me comfortable? Does he provide for my needs? Does he get, make me happy, and it's all about me and what I need? Or, as Jesus would say, it's not necessarily the comfortable life, it is the called life. In fact, here, here's what's interesting. Did you know Jesus' disciples weren't just expected to know what Jesus knew? They were expected and called upon to do what Jesus did. When Jesus looked at his followers in that day, and it translates to, to today, it's not just about being smarter. It's not just about knowing the right things. It's not just about being a good moral person. It is about doing the very things that Jesus did. And he started this from the very beginning. This wasn't like after Jesus died, and so now they started the program. Jesus started this in the like, training grounds with his disciples. If you got your Bibles, would you open them up to Mark chapter 6, verse 7? If you don't have a Bible, man, we'd love to give you one. And uh, if you don't, it's in your notes, and it's up on the screen here. And notice this in verse uh, 7. Jesus, after going on this big preaching tour, 
Uh, he, we just left off last week where he's in his hometown of Nazareth, but then after that, he then traveled the Galilean area, his third preaching tour in that area. He then calls his disciples to do what he did, not just to follow around and be a helper, but go and be. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Uh, these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no muddy in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, well, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Then uh, they went out and preached the, that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So in the middle of this Jesus story, we have this incredible moment of how Jesus is determining or gauging success for his followers. He didn't give them a quiz. He, he didn't sit down and go, okay, guys, how much do you know? And let, let's get it down. Do you have the basics? All right. Do you have the Torah memorized? And, and do you know all the different things? And, and, and you know, he, at this, by this time, he's probably preached the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount many times. Okay, do you have my sermons down? And, and how well are you doing at accountability in your groups? He says, guys, guys, yeah, you need to know what I know, but not just for knowledge's sake, because the difference is if you're going to follow me, I'm calling you to something. I'm calling you to a life that is deeper and grander than you could ever dream. And it will cause you to face your insecurities and the things that you put in place of me. See, the storm that we so often wrestle with in our lives when we're asking that question, how? How will you measure your life as a follower of Jesus is the storm of just simply staying comfortable in your safe little circle and us four and no more reality or stepping into the calling of God on your life, fulfilling your purpose on this planet wherever that takes you. So I, I think there's a few observations from this text about how do we do that? How do we begin to step into your calling as a follower of Jesus? How, how do we not just look up years later and realize for 15 years we missed it because we never asked a big question of our life, and when, as a result, we never lived a significant life? And we look back and go, hey, I missed it. I, I do not want to see that for you, and I, that is not the church we long to become. This is not a come and see church. This is a go and be church. Stepping into my calling as a follower of Jesus, number one, and you may have heard this before, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. You notice that? God doesn't call the equipped. He doesn't make sure that, okay, the people that have it all figured out, the, the people that, you know, okay, God only calls the preachers and the pastors and the, you know, the missionaries and all them, and, and they're the ones because do you know where he says, calling the 12 to him? I mean, guys, you, we've been journeying through the book of Mark together. You've seen the 12. This is a lousy bunch. I mean, think about this. They've been oftentimes absolutely confused of who Jesus is, terrified on, of him, completely misunderstood him, and have questioned him at every turn. And Jesus says, hey, that group, 
that group, I'm going to send you out. Are you prepared? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, we've been following them a little bit, but I don't think we're prepared. And God says, no, 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 no. I don't just call the equipped, I, or equip the called, I, I, yeah, equips the called, I said that wrong, doesn't just call the equipped, he equips the called, listen to what 2 Corinthians 5 says, it's in your notes, and he has committed to, now circle this word, us, he's committed to us, you, and me, person sitting next to you, Person sent to your right, left, and you. The message of reconciliation. The greatest message this planet has ever heard. That the God of the universe loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. That if you would receive him, give your life to him, he would actually give you a new life in return. That Jesus died on the cross and came back to life defeating sin, death, that we might have a relationship with God forever. He's committed to us that message that we can be reconciled with God. We'll no longer be at odds with the God of the universe. We'll no longer have have enmity between him, but we will experience peace and hope and life. He's committed to you, to you, that message. He says, you're the carrier. You're my game plan, not someone else. Notice, Verse 20, we, circle that, we are therefore Christ's ambassador. Ambassador, representative, that wherever you go, whether you realize it or not, people are catching Jesus or think they see Jesus. He says, you are his ambassador, his representative, his, his, his voice to a hurting and broken world. And, and our thing is, I, I don't know enough. I don't have it figured out. I, I don't have all the answers, and it feels really overwhelming, and, and we begin to retreat to our comfortable place of, I, I can't do it. And it says, no, no, no. God doesn't just call the equipped. He, doesn't, he equips you. Now, you know what Jesus and Cal Poly have in common? And who went to Cal Poly here? I, a lot of you guys did, or some of you. My wife loves Cal Poly. She went to Cal Poly. She talks about it like it's the greatest place on the planet, as if it's Disneyland. When she thinks back to her college years, and she's going in a couple weeks with her uh, college roommates uh, away, you know, her girls' weekend away, uh, she talks about it like it's the greatest time of her life. And I'm like, now it's not that bad either, right? I mean, I mean, come on. But, but here's what Jesus and Cal Poly have in common. You know what Cal Poly's motto is, anybody? Learn by doing. Jesus says that's the same true for you. Learn by doing. And some of you sat on the sidelines, some of you going, I can't, I can't, I can't. He says, just get in the game. Uh, along the way, you'll learn by doing. It, you want to grow in your faith, step out in faith, period. That will always grow your faith. First, stepping into my calling as a follower of Jesus. God doesn't call the equip. He equips the call. The second, in the kingdom of God, there are no lone rangers. Get a team. There's just no lone rangers. There's no just like, you know, it's just me. You notice that he sends them out two by two, and it's for a couple reasons. One, just for protection along the way. Another is you know that as you're doing ministry, you need perspective. You, You need people around you. Uh, you know, uh, 
the Christian life was never intended to do it alone. In fact, it's not difficult to do by yourself. It's impossible. That's why we have missional communities, so that in community you can be on mission together. You may not be at the same work or the same campuses, but you have this common calling where you're saying, hey, we're doing this together. You have some men or some women that you link arms together that keep you together. You go, man, let's get after it. Get a team. Uh, and, you know, if you're married, your first place you look for a team is in your spouse. When, when we started, and I got, you know, December, we've been married 12 years, before our prayer as we were engaged is that God would use us greater together than we ever could apart. That was our prayer. Realize, okay, as this union, maybe you're engaged and, or you're, you're kind of like really dating someone, make that your prayer. God, would you use us greater together than you ever could apart? That our togetherness would glorify you and other people would experience you so deeply. And so if you're married, you start, you start with your spouse. Hey, maybe you start with your roommates. Good buddy, close friend. But God doesn't have lone rangers. I'm doing my own, my own. He says, no, no, no. The Christian life following, living out your calling is meant to be done in togetherness in the kingdom of God in community with a team. So God doesn't just call the equipped, he equips the called. In the kingdom, there are no lone rangers. Number three here is then you are empowered by God to do a powerful work. Just think about that. Let, let, just let that settle in for a second. Notice what he said. Calling the twelve to him sends them out two by two, and then what does it say? He gave them authority over all impure spirits. That, that one, one of the things you just need to realize is the fundamental condition of humanity, the problem for people isn't physical, it's spiritual. The greatest need is the need of the soul. And we try to fix it with physical things that never satisfy. Their greatest hurt and longing is to be brought into a relationship with the God of the universe. And he's empowered you to bring healing. Jesus didn't ask his disciples to be helpers. He called them to be healers. And he sent them. He said, I gave you authority. And when you become a follower of Jesus, says the Spirit of God now lives inside of you. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you to empower you to live a completely radical new life. It's not like it's just all you. He says, no, it's the Spirit of God in you. Uh, one of the verses that has transformed my life more than probably any other verse is 2 Peter 1.3. It says, His divine power. God, God, God. His divine power has given you everything we need for life and godliness. See, it's God at work in you and through you. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is empowering you. Well, what does this look like? Well, a lot of times when it's stepping into your calling, there, God will prompt you. Hey, hey, you need to talk. God will prompt you to care about someone or a community deeply and, and share the love of Jesus with them, both in word and deed. 
In those moments, he, he will give you empowered, he'll give you words to say. And a lot of times we wait until, okay, show me what to say, and then I'll go. And a lot of times it's going, okay, I'm just going to step into the middle of it, and then you got to show me what to say. I don't know what it is, but I'm just, I'm following the prompting that you wanted me to talk to you. And just, by the way, if God's prompting you to talk with someone, to share with someone, then most likely, I guarantee you, he's been preparing them for you. You say, okay, God, give me words to say, and he will. I love it. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Come on, help me out. Yeah, for it's the power of God. It's the power. Listen, listen, listen. The power isn't in the method. The power is in the message of the hope of the glory of God that Jesus loves you, died for you. That is the power. And God says, you are empowered by God to do a powerful work. So stop sitting on the sidelines. Stop living comfortable lives with little to no conviction and step into your calling so that you can be a life changer in someone else's life. You are empowered by God to do a powerful work. Number four, the how is just as important as the what. The how, how we go about this is just as important as what we do. Jesus, you'll notice, gave specific instructions. And and those specific instructions, actually, they're not prescriptive, but there's some deep principles behind them. And I mean, they're not prescriptive. Some people have thought that uh, that we should go with no money, no bags, and, uh, you know, just a shirt, no cloak, and sandals, and we should just do it exactly. That, that's not what he's saying. But there are some deep principles on how we go about it that are, that are in this passage. And, and I, I, what I love, First Peter, Peter writes here and, and hits it on the head, says, verse 15, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. First, okay, before you begin, you just go, God, you're Lord of my life. Have everything. Now, always be prepared. Now circle that because some of you are hearing this and you're going like, I don't have to be prepared. What I've heard so far is I don't have to plan. I don't have to be prepared. If you don't know the good news, if you can't tell someone about Jesus and if someone asks you, hey, I'd love to know about Jesus, would you tell me about him? You go, no, get prepared. Do some work. And there's some great helps, whether it's the four spiritual laws or the Romans road or the AB, figure it out. Be prepared. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. By the way, Christians should live such hopeful, joyful, different lives that people should notice. But, do this with what? What's it say? Gentleness and respect. Not in your face, not coercive, not jerky, not I've got everything right, not you're an idiot. Gently. And that respect, honor, that you honor the other person. You honor who they are. You, you honor where they're coming from. You respect them. Jesus' instructions, the first one is, he says, take nothing. And that's the principle of dependency. He says, take nothing, you know, and he writes, journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. You don't need most of what you think you need to be effective in the kingdom of God. What you need is a high confidence that, that you're called and you step out in faith, period. 
go, man, you don't, I mean, look around. We're sitting in a cafeteria, okay? We don't need all this funky lights and all that. We just need to gather, and God does something. The principle of dependence says, I need God, and so, and nothing else, and so I'll go with God, and, and I'll take what I got. But you know what it does, though? It, it eliminates distractions because we get distracted by stuff that we think, oh, I really, that would be really good or we should really do that. And it, it eliminates the distractions from what the main thing is. And, and it also eliminates excuses. Well, we don't have that or we just don't have enough money or, you know what, uh, you know, if Ryan was here or so-and-so was here, they could do that, but I can't. So, no, it's the principle of dependency. All I need is God with me and I'm good. All I need is God with me, and I'm good. You go with God. Second thing, then, Jesus says, is the principle of integrity. And this one, you've got to know the culture to unpack it. Uh, he says there, and, uh, where he says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And, and this concept uh, was the hospitality was on the ownership of the town. In the ancient Middle East, it was uh, one where they took great pride. And so when you walked into town, you didn't ask somebody for a place to stay. They would immediately ask you uh, and say, invite you in. And so the first family that would invite you in, you'd stay there. But oftentimes, if you got, you know, uh, found favor or they liked what you're saying, you know, more of the wealthier people in the town would then offer up their homes for you to stay there. And so it's so tempting to go, you know what, it would be really great. We're staying in this little place and eating porridge, and man, they got steak down the road, and they offered me in. And so, well, yeah, you know what, God's blessing, so I better go, you know. And I, you know, oh, God would want me to. And yet, what it would do is it would deface that family. It'd cause friction in the community. And it would be a self-serving choice rather than a selfless choice. See, it's the principle of integrity. Living in such a way that you live above reproach. Integrity is the idea of wholeness. It's what you do when no one is looking and for some, there, there's some areas here where, where you need to get real with God. And you go, you know what? I, I need to bring some stuff to the surface. And I need to be honest about where I'm at. Nothing good grows in the dark. And so those secrets are keeping you suffocated in bondage and keeping you from living out your calling on this planet. And you get real with someone. And you go, okay, I need help. Before I can move forward, I, 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 the principle of integrity is huge. You've got to start with you. Jesus says, okay, instructional, principle of dependency, principle of integrity, and finally, the principle of receptivity. He says, and if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, and this is steeped in so much cultural things, we don't have time to, to unpack it fully, but, but it has this idea I, in our culture today, is that you simply respond to people and go, okay, are they receptive or not? Your job is not to convince, manipulate, coerce people. My responsibility is simply this, is to pray faithfully, to care deeply, and to share lovingly. I cannot convince someone. That is something only the Spirit of God and the work of God in someone's life can do. But I can, I can be 
faithful. I can love you. And you just go, okay, you know, there's times. But, but we land on two different sides here. One, one, some people are just so dogmatic and persistent with people that they're just jerks, and they just beat people down, right? Yeah, you've seen that? And then the other side is then we make this an excuse. We see people that we don't, they're probably the farthest away from God, and they would never receive Jesus. And you're like, no, they're so far from God. And so we use that as an excuse of like, well, they're, they're not receptive. Well, you don't know. Your responsibility, their responsibility in the text was to go and share. Let them respond. However they will respond. You're, you're not responsible for their response. You're responsible for going and sharing. Jesus says, how? How you do what you do is just as important as what you say. Stepping into your calling, five areas here. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called in the kingdom of God, there's no lone rangers. You are empowered by God to do a powerful work. The how is as important as the what. And finally, your relationship with Jesus is personal, but it is not private. When we ask this question, how will you measure your life as a follower of Jesus? What you need to know is your relationship with Jesus is very personal. It was never intended to be private. Just imagine, just imagine if I treated my marriage that I always kept it private. We don't talk about it. So, so I don't have a ring on when I'm in, you know, certain crowds, you know, Monday through Friday, I never talk about my wife. There's no pictures about my wife. I go hang out and do everything like a single bachelor would. And yet there's, there's a certain day that I gather with a few select people that I act like my wife is my wife, you know, and I go, woohoo, you know, and, and every once in a while throughout the week, I might give her a phone call, you know, just to check in. I might be lonely. So, hey, how are you? And, and I just go, man, wouldn't that be... You go, man, you're a jerk. And that's weird, and she should leave you. That is how we all too often treat Jesus, isn't it? It's just a private thing. No, it's a relationship with the God of the universe that should overflow into every single area of life. I love, I love, I love, I love how in the voice, it's a paraphrase of the Bible, how he concludes this passage. He says, they preach joyful, with joyful urgency, the, that life can be radically different. I love that. They preached, the disciples went out and preached with joyful urgency that life could be radically different. Uh, the other day I was cleaning up uh, our room and garage, and uh, we've been trying to get organized, and I came across this book uh, that my wife put together uh, a while back for my 30th birthday, and so that's, if you can see those close up, that's me at like four. Um, in it, uh, and I'd totally forgotten about this, in it was these notes that people had written to me for my 30th birthday, and, you know, pictures of me as a kid and with my dad, and, you know, 
stuff that my parents and aunts and friends had wrote. And, and I flipped across, and I'm just, I, I got stuck, you know. I was sitting in my, um, just on my floor, and I just started reading these. And I came across a guy named Preston Caffrey. Preston's a guy I, I met in high school, my senior year of high school. He was the guy that you would think is the most least receptive to Jesus. He was the cool kid on campus, knew everybody. And in one moment, I just, I didn't have the right words to say. It was in our U.S. Gov class. I just, it was like during the class and the lecture, I just like turned to him. I said, has anybody ever told you about Jesus? I mean, like as an 18-year-old kid, right? I don't know what I'm doing. I just, God got a hold of my heart and I couldn't keep it in. And he's like, no, you're kind of questioning. Like, could I? Sure. (laughs) And so from that, I just started sharing about Jesus with them, and because God that summer like got a hold of my heart, and I'm like, dude, this is amazing. How could I keep that from anyone? Well, here's what's cool. He writes this. How does one man thank another for ushering the word of Christ into his life? What words would he write to honor an impervious friendship? What gratitude could be conveyed? But to thank you from the bottom of my heart with an ever-flowing love that Christ now gives to me. From my family, friends, wife, children, your willingness to share him at a time when it was not cool to and to a person who was least likely to accept it. I love you, my friend, and will for eternity. Thank you for a life well lived. How will you measure your life as a follower of Jesus? And you live between two storms. The storm of staying in your comfortable lives or stepping into your calling. I want to live a life where I get to read more and more of those stories, and I want you to live a life where you get to be a part of those stories. It's uncomfortable. It's an 18-year-old kid. It was scary, and now I think about where he's at, and he's got two kids and a beautiful wife. And How? How will you measure your life? Comfort, calling. As we close, I wouldn't ask you, okay, you got to just make the choice. What's going to change? Would you choose today, okay, God, I'm in, but set, a Christ, set apart Christ as Lord of your heart, and I'm going to go for it. And maybe there's someone that you need to pray for and someone you need to talk to. God, would you make us a community that defines how we live by how well we love and how well we we step into those uncomfortable moments where you call us to share you. Thank you that someone did it for us and someone showed us you. May we now do it for someone else. In Jesus' name.